Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash I am divine 2022. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to World Spirituality, exploring the unity within all cultures and faith traditions with your host, Reverend Paul John Roach. So hello and welcome to World Spirituality on the Unity Online Radio Network. Yes, I'm your host, Paul John Roach, coming to you from a fiery hot day in Fort Worth, Texas. And today I begin a three-week series looking at aspects of the divine feminine. We've covered this ground before because it is an absolutely fascinating one. But I thought we'd look at some other aspects of the divine feminine. And our series begins with Lynn Pinknett and Clive Prince, who are prolific authors of such bestsellers as The Stargate Conspiracy, The Templar Revelation, which actually directly inspired the Da Vinci Code, and their systematic research into historical and religious mysteries makes them frequent guests and speakers at conferences around the world and on radio and television. And their latest book is entitled, Nautily, that when God had a wife, and I love that title, when God had a wife, the fall and rise of the sacred feminine in the Judeo-Christian tradition. And it is thoroughly researched. I, I'm a fairly uh, you know, I don't want to say I'm a scholar of the Bible, but I know the Bible quite well. And, and so I can attest to the fact that a lot of research has gone into this. And um, it, it, it makes fascinating reading, folks, and it's going to make fascinating listening. And, and so uh, let's look at the, uh, the origins of the Bible, the, uh, the, the facts uh, and, and the, the fact that um, Judaism is not what it purports to be um, and, and Jesus and his contemporaries. Prepare to be edified, I would say. So it's a, it's a joy to welcome uh, Clive and Lynn to today's show. So glad you could be with us. Thanks very much for inviting us. Yes, lovely to be here. Well, you know, the Bible is a backdated book, isn't it, in a sense? Do you want to t- tell us what that is exactly, that it, it's not what it purports to be, right? Yes. Well, I mean, it's, it, you know, like, like, like many writings, you know, it's written with a great deal of hindsight. Um, and one absolutely crucial thing for for our book is 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 to realise this because we tend to look at the Bible, particularly you know the the Old Testament, the the Hebrew Bible, and start from page one and work way forward as if that is the order, um, the the real order in which the book ha- was written and the order that things happened. But it's important to realise that the book we have was really put together actually quite late. Um, most people know about you know the exile in in Babylon, 
um, and when the when when the Jews returned from that exile, um, and it was about you know, a couple of generations after that, about about you know eighty years afterwards, we're talking sort of at the, the middle of the four hundreds BC that they they the, the, the authorities then really sat down and codified the religion and defined exactly what it was that um, the Judaic religion was. And because it's so entwined with the um, the history of the people, you know, starting with the Exodus and all the other things that happened along the way, um, codifying the religion also meant codifying the history. So it meant going back over the history retrospectively, um, telling the stories as in a way they wanted them to be, like so much history is, I have to say. Um, but it's given that extra edge when it has that when it's about a religion as well, when it's about belief. So it's it's kind of a rewriting of history. And but with with a lot of detective work that's been done by you know generations of um of biblical scholars, um, have teased out you, you can actually reconstruct between the lines a lot of what really happened. And it surprisingly, there's an, there's an awful amount left in there that actually give clues as as to to what it was really about. Mm. And and particularly, you know, the thing we really pick up on is the fact that the sacred feminine, the goddess, was really important in the the Israelite religion. I'm going to avoid calling it Jewish religion at that point because it gives the wrong impression. This is the religion of all the tribes of Israel, and what we get in in the, the the putting together of the Bible um, is just one particular interpretation, and it, we say with it a lot of hindsight. But actually, Paul, one of the things that really gets me as as a woman, of course, right. is that when both um, Judaism, if you like, and and Christianity, when when they were both codified, when it was decided, this is what the religion is going to be from now on. Th- these are the rules. This is what you have to believe, or else. Um, at that point, both for Judaism and Christianity, that was when the sacred feminine was kind of edited out, as if it had never happened. But actually, it had happened in both religions. Um, so this is one of the things that, you know, it's, it's quite interesting. I sort of see the, the you know, the, the, the codifying episodes of, as all these boys sitting around a table saying, you know, well, well let's get rid of the women, you know. I mean, okay, it wasn't quite like that, but that's what it—that's what the effect has been. I mean, that actually goes slightly further and says it's not just about editing the sacred feminine out, which has its impact on 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 women as a whole. Um, it's actually actively demonising yeah. women. Yeah. Um, you know, turning them into the problem. Mm. So I've had. Yeah. So it's not a matter of just just writing the the feminine out. Mm. It's it's going mm. it's even yeah. more extreme and actually mm. being actively hostile. Yeah. Yeah. And, as, and yet, as you say, there are, there are so many elements of the feminine still in the Bible, right? We were, right from the beginning, um, and so many elements of uh, elements of uh, polytheism. You know, the the, mm. the use yep. of the word Elohim, you know, which you mentioned in the book. You know, is is a plural, right? To, yeah. to describe God, uh, yeah. El Shaddai has always been one of my favorites because it's it's mm-hmm. almost a uh, it can mean mountain or breast, right? Uh, this idea of the nurturing presence of yeah. God, um, which is a feminine idea again. Um, so that that survived. We we translate it as Almighty usually, but um, it it has a, a much different meaning, I think, than just Almighty. Though it is the Almighty power of 
of giving this, you know, the cornucopia, the, 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 the giving of, of uh, good things by the, by the female God, right? Uh, providing for, nourishing, etc. And then you've got the book of um, the Song of Songs, right? Which is <laughs> unbelievable when you think about it. How did that, you know, end up staying in the Bible? I know that you mentioned this in the book too, that sometimes, you know, at some points in history, they wanted to remove it, right? But the, it stayed in, and, and it is very um, different, I would say, from the from the rest of the Bible. It reads almost like um, something you might find in, in in Hinduism or something. You know, it it has that uh, sensual, ravishing quality. It it, it certainly does. Um, uh, you know, and some scholars have linked it to um, uh, you know to 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 Indian. Uh, poetry Indian ideas um, but also to kind of native um, you know, Middle Eastern religions um, right. it is so strange that it, it did get um, it, it did get left into the sort of canonical texts and as you say there was this move around about the first century um, amongst uh, you know, Jewish scholars who questioned you know, what's he doing there but then there was a, a whole school that said you know, there was one famous rabbi that actually referred to it as the, the holy of holies of the Bible, that actually that's where the core message is, um, which is a very strange. And interestingly, um, somewhat mysteriously, really, but also interestingly, um, certain passages from um, from that book are read on Mary Magdalene's feast day in the Catholic Church. Um, so, I mean, it's a very erotic extraordinary as you say it's it's erotic it's sensual and you know you think what on earth is it doing in the bible but it's it's interesting it is linked with mary magdalene right and uh, that that we'll, we'll come to that in, in a little bit because i want to talk about mary magdalene and, and the influence of the powerful influence of her consciousness actually but uh, you know, in the Bible, it's like the, the Jews are always backsliding, right? They, they're, not, they're supposed <laughs> to be worshiping Yahweh. Uh, they're supposed to be remaining faithful to the one God, um, and yet they're always, uh, you know, either putting up uh, the golden calf, or, you know, when, when they're tired of waiting for Moses, or or then worshiping these the, the gods of Baal or, or Asherah, you know, the the female gods, the goddesses. <laughs> And and it sounds like these are sort of um, alien gods, you know, that the Jews fall into fall into worshiping because they're in Canaan and that's what they do there. But really, that's not the way it worked, right? It's the opposite, right? That they this 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 was taken for granted. In fact, in in the temple, right, in the temple of Solomon, uh, there were there were images of the female, you know, that were quite normal and accepted at that time. That's fascinating to me. Well, yes, I mean, it, it's, it is astonishing that in, in Solomon's temple, of all places, you know, next to um, the, the, the focus of worship of Yahweh, um, it was basically, you know, a, a focus of worship for Asherah, um, essentially Yahweh's wife. So there you have, you know, the God and his wife or the goddess and her husband, um, you know, cons divine consorts. In Solomon's temple, I mean, it was right. it, it was absolutely it was official for hundreds of years, and this is what people just have not been told. They're just not aware of it. And as you say, the whole idea of you know 
of of the backsliding, you know, when Moses was, you know, out of out of eyeshot, you know, out of eyesight, and there they were, you know, instantly, sort of apparently, you know, just worshiping these outrageous gods. I mean, the thing was that the idea of worshiping one god, the idea of monotheism, was actually absurd to uh, to all peoples at that time. You know, polytheism was the thing. Um, you know, there were many, many gods, um, and you know, this was. This was an essential part of what we were about. So actually, as you say, it was it was not it was abnormal to have one God. Right. And also that that codifying of the religion that we talked about earlier, it was only really at that time that that religion, the Jewish religion, became monotheistic. Um, previous to that, it hadn't been. Um, and you know. The evidence for that is is overwhelming. It's one thing we try and bring home in the book. It's actually how much evidence for there is, it's including, strangely enough, in the Bible, in the Old Testament itself, because the Old Testament doesn't actually pretend that uh, the um, that the Israelites were monotheists. They're what's what scholars call monolaters. They're people that worship one God. Um, in preference to all the others, but they acknowledge other gods exist and they kind of worship them in a lesser way. Um, and that is actually the way that the Bible is, you know, the Old Testament is presented. You know, you get lines in it where you think of it, who among the gods is like you, O Lord? It's not, there are no other gods. And it's not really until you get quite late in the Bible that some of the prophets actually start to make the statement, there are no other gods. Until that point, you know this this rewriting of the history um actually they, they didn't do a very good job of no, it no. because um they leave all the clues in there i mean it, it's as you said you know the backsliding it's they acknowledge that there were other gods worship there were and goddesses and particularly asherah alongside yahweh that is all acknowledged but they just put a new spin on it the spin being that was backsliding well actually it was the norm this idea of you know for example, um, the the image of Asherah that was in Solomon's temple. Um, you read the Bible, and the impression you get is that the norm was it just to be about Yahweh, and occasionally um, some um, backsliding king or priest would have the image put in there, and then another king would have it taken out and burnt, and then some, later on it would get put back. So the image you get is that the norm was it just to be for Yahweh, but there was an aberration occasionally uh, Asherah was worshipped in there. You actually look at the, the information it gives you and you tot up the years that it gives you and you find out actually for over 70% of those years, the Asherah figure was in there. That was the norm, the unusual thing, the aberration was for it not to be there. Uh, yeah. And quite outside of the, the actual temple, um, you know, for, for generations and generations, the ordinary everyday people worshipped Asherah. She, you know, they, they loved Asherah. They wanted to keep worshipping her. Um, the, you know, this was she was she was the big thing in their lives. Um, they worshipped her in the outdoors. Um, they worshipped her, you know, as 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 a tree. Well, uh, represented as as a palm tree um, under which sometimes the prophetesses sat. And you know her priestesses sat. Um, you know, always they were there worshiping Asherah, and they wanted to, and they wanted to keep worshiping her. And it was always the elite 
who imposed the new rules and said, no, you're backsliding, no, you mustn't do this. So it, the, the, to the ordinary people, Asherah was much beloved. Well, and the whole image of the tree, you know, goes all through the Bible, doesn't it? Even uh, the founding of the, 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 the line of David, right? It says a, a shoot shall come forth from the, the stump of, of Jesse, right? So is the image imagery there of the, the flourishing of, uh, of Mother Nature, you know, even in the midst of uh, after it gets cut down, it regenerates. And, yes. and yes. so, you know, they're, they're very comfortable all through the Bible. There's many, many references to trees. Um, mm. it, it's, it connects to me with, again, Hindu ideas, you know, you're talking about the uh, lingams, or the Shiva lingam, mm. uh, the dolmens of the Celts, you know, the, mm. this, this image of, of, of worshipping pillars or poles. And in modern day, we, ha we have uh, the maypole, right, which represents yeah. fertility, mm. which, which is a sort of a similar symbol to Asherah, you know, the, this mm. idea of, um, again, the, the the mixture of the sacred sexualities there, right? So you've got the, um, you know, the, the the phallus idea, and then then the the encompassing womb idea, right? And yep. and it's not just in a temple; it hasn't been politicized and and limited to a temple. It's all over the landscape, right? So every yes. every hill has one of these um, yeah. images. The everything is sacred, and I, I love that idea too, right? That um, when you stick it in a temple and keep it safe, you know, then only a few people, the priests, uh, you know, have the power. But uh, when, when it's scattered through the countryside, it, there's, there's a greater uh, democracy around, around the power of spirituality. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing to, to, to recognize is that you know, the, the books that we, uh, that, um, that, that we read, um, they represent, in a way, what the elites, you know, what the kings, what the what the rulers, what the priests, what the people in the capital city, um, their cult, what they do. Um, right. And quite a lot of the time, they're, they're not particularly interested in what the people out in the fields, uh, the peasants do. Um, you, know, you find all kinds of um, ritual objects that the, the ordinary people had uh, borrowed from all kinds of religions, you know, the... Um, Egyptian images and so on. So when we read the books, you know, the books obviously written by the scribes to the people that can read and write, which is the elite. Um, so it doesn't tell us a lot about what the ordinary people thought and believed. Um, that's where you have to turn to archaeology, and that's where you find things like, um, you know, lots and lots of um, figurines of um, female figures, you know. Um, must be a goddess. Um, uh, he's almost certainly Asherah, um, which was just sort of in people's houses for domestic reasons. Um, so, um, you, you know, the, 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 the image we have of what the day to day worship was like in those days is, you know, if we just get it from reading the Bible, we get a completely wrong image. Yeah, I mean, Clive mentioned archaeology, and it, it, you know, it was—it's fairly recently, sort of twentieth century—that that that, that, that archaeology has been turning up some, you know, hundreds and hundreds of bits of pots with inscriptions on from, you know, from way way back, saying with inscriptions saying things like, you know, bless I bless so and so in the name of Yahweh and his Asherah, and 
And I think that's really sweet, apart from anything else. You know, here's Asherah. Um, but, um, but, you know, it, it's after various, you know, centuries and centuries of, of vagueness surrounding um, the Jewish goddess and, and not really knowing what Asherah meant in the Old Testament, suddenly it all fell into place with, with archaeology. And so, you know, it, it makes sense that, that we, we were finding evidence of the worship of ordinary people, as we've just been saying. Ordinary people loved Asherah. She was part of their everyday life. Well, if, if you, again, if you go to, you know, a modern culture like India, which has, you know, great history and, and a tradition going back thousands of years, you know, you've got the, the same images there, you know, of Shiva mm -hmm. and Shakti and all uh, as an example, you know, of the mm -hmm. um, the fact that the god has its consort, you know, mm -hmm. and that consort is, um, you know, can be can be powerful, right? There's yeah. there's the Kali side of the mm -hmm. the female, you know, the 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 wrathful the wrathful side, and then there's the sort of peaceful poverty side. Um, yeah. So you know, the the female is represents the mother nature, if you like, in all in all her moods, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we're we're we're. It's dangerous, I think, to give up that, right? Because if you mm -hmm. if you give it up, then you, you you have to try and explain all all that in another way. And unfortunately, sometimes it's been explained as as Satan, right? And um, so we've yeah. we've given away some of the energies and powers of the female and, and ascribed them as evil, and yeah. and you know we're, we're, that's led to a lot of uh, unfortunate. Um, uh, bad, bad history, you know, as a result of that. So, so it seems to me this is a healing process to to come home to the feminine. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, we, be, before we came on air, actually, we were talking about this and saying that, in a sense, without trying to be preachy, you know, we we've just been presenting evidence. But in, in a sense, what we've been doing is pointing out where things went wrong, and you know, hopefully, we're part of the healing process. Right. And I think, um, you know, at this time in our history, this is very much so because um, there's been a resurgence of the feminine, you know, in, yeah. in popular culture and, mm -hmm. and as a as a viable a way of approach approaching the divine. Right. So um, so so your book is timely in that regard because it, it uh, explores these very elements that uh, people are resonating with, you know, in the in the Bible itself, which mm -hmm. is which is great. Right. Uh, I think it's a lo lovely thing. Yeah, well, that's um, what, we're trying, what we're trying to do in, in that is a trying to build this bridge that um, I mean, a lot of people are instinctively aware of the sacred feminine. Um, yeah, we, we all kind of feel it and know about it. But what we wanted to do was show how much kind of solid scholarly evidence there is to back this up. So it, it's not just a matter of people now sort of you know, projecting our contemporary values um back into the past and, and you know and looking for something that isn't there it's right. something that genuinely was lost um yeah because and, and what we've done is we've tried to go through look at the the archaeology and all the other scholarly evidence um uh, from analyzing the language and and, and and everything um and put it all together because even the scholars themselves haven't necessarily joined all the dots so so one has concentrated on a particular book of the Old Testament or a particular story and has teased out a lot of information, for example, about um, there was a whole um, line of female prophets and female wisdom, for 
that is there that, that some scholars have talked about. There are others that have talked about you know, Asherah. There are others that are you know, from the archaeology and so on. And there are others that have teased out other bits of information about not just the goddess, but about the various roles that women had mm. within that religion. Mm. Um, and they, they haven't necessarily put it all together. So we're just sort of coming along and saying, look, join the dots, put it all mm. in place mm. and look at the picture that comes out. Yeah. And it's extraordinary. Yeah. It is know, extraordinary. Um, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm a believer in the fact that, you know, you can't you can't hide this stuff, you know, that. It doesn't matter how much you try and excise it, it's mm. it's going to be there. And it, yeah. it's in the wisdom, right? It's in the mm. wisdom books. Um, yeah. we, we have the female idea of wisdom. We have Sophia. We have the Shekinah, yeah. the, yeah. the idea yeah. of the pre, the female presence of God, you know, the, the Kabbalistic teachings of uh, Judaism. Mm. Again, you know, have a strong female element, right? There's a balance between the male and the the female and the in the tree of life and there's the tree again right yeah so yeah. this this stuff may may go underground but you can't eradicate it because i think it's an essential part of who we are right as you have to have the yin and the yang and yeah, um, yeah. You, you and and it's going to come out and i think that's that's why these things are still in the bible to be to be explored and, and discovered so you know this is this is fascinating stuff but um, i mean at the very at the very basic sorry to interrupt i was just going to say at the very very basis basic level people yearn for a mother they yearn for mother's comfort they yearn for a mother figure on on a divine level on, on an archetypal level and this is the goddess absolutely you know and as we're going through uh, covid-19 um you know i've noticed that i've always had a love of mother nature but i I've deepened that as I work in my garden and I enjoy my, the landscape around here. You know, I'm not I'm not so distracted by other things. I'm I'm focused, but I found great comfort and 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 succor from from that the resource, right? From the from that presence, and um, to me that speaks to what we're talking about here. You know, that we need that in our lives, and it's been proved that you know if children are not surrounded by the green or nature. You know they suffer uh, psycho psychological damage, emotional damage. So uh, it you know it is essential, uh, folks. I am with a fascinating couple, Lynn Pinknet and Clive Prince. They've written several books on fascinating subjects. The latest is When God Had a Wife, a much needed book, I think, at this time. The Fall and Rise of the Sacred Feminine in the Judeo-Christian Tradition. We are at the break. Um, when we come back, we'll we'll move forward towards the New Testament and discuss uh, feminine ideas in the Gospels. Uh, was Jesus a feminist? Was he indeed married? Um, and some other revelations. So join us in a couple of minutes after these messages from Unity. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
return to World Spirituality with Reverend Paul John Roach. All right, welcome back to today's show. I'm with Clive Prince and Lynn Picknett, Picknett, excuse me, and we're talking about their new book, When God Had a Wife, The Fall and Rise of the Sacred Feminine in the Judeo-Christian Tradition. And we talked about, yeah, you can't keep a good idea down, right? The, the feminine's going to burst forth. And some of the most powerful parts of the Bible for me are the parts where the feminine voice speaks, right? Whether that be in the the Song of Songs or in the Wisdom books, or the Proverbs, um, s- some of the, uh, the apocryphal books, um, and even in the the older parts of the, the the Hebrew Bible, you know, we see elements of the of the feminine. Some of the most ancient writing, right? Some of the most uh, uh, c- considered to be going way back, uh, uh, voices of women. Um, we've got Miriam, the Song of Miriam, uh, Song of the Sea. Uh, we've got Deborah speaking and singing. Uh, so this is interesting that these these ancient ancient voices um, are still are still here in the Bible. Hmm. Absolutely, yes. Um, you know. There's actually a lot more feminine in the in the Bible in the Old Testament. Um, that that we tend to think, perhaps because um, you know when people are in say church or Sunday school and messages, they get that the parts that get read out tend not to be those. Bits. But when you start digging down to it, you know you have prophetesses, you have wise women, um, you have priestesses, except they're not quite called that. Um, but it's very clear that that's what they are. Um, and um, so, so, yes, it, it's actually a much more, I was going to say female friendly. That's not true because the women tend to be kind of rather demonized. But the, the, the information you can tease out of them is that women had a huge role. And it comes you know, as, as we're getting on for the, the New Testament. Um, you know, I mean, one of the things we've kind of reconstructed in the book is this thing that when they tried to eradicate the goddess um, from the religion when it was when it was codified and, and the books were set and the history was rewritten. Um, that, as is always the way, um, it all went underground, and there were people trying to bring the goddess back. And right. One, one form that really came through in the, a couple of centuries um, yeah, before Jesus came along was the creation of this figure called uh, Sophia, wisdom who could be presented as a sort of metaphor, just like God's wisdom. But when you actually look at it, you know, it's, it's an independent female entity through which God creates. And it, it, you look at the, the, the imagery, and it's very much taking back to the original ancient goddess. Um, and that becomes quite a key to unlocking what was going on in, in New Testament, in the Gospels. Yeah, which is quite fascinating because there's a whole lot going on, isn't there, between the Bibles, you know, that in the uh, canonical books and um, in, in the Apocrypha and whatnot, you know, um, there, there's a whole realm of thinking and changing of ideas. And, of course, then the influence of uh, Persian thought, I guess, and Greek thought. So there's a whole mix there going on. And, and um, Sophia is very much, you know, central to that, I would think. There's a very important element. I just want to mention, before we move into the New Testament, I've got a friend who wrote a book called Uppity Women of the Bible, and um, 
you know, there are a lot of uppity women. You know, if we mentioned Deborah, there's, but there's Ruth, there's Judith, there's Esther. Yep. Um, there's Mary Magdalene herself. You know, the, these are powerful women. Um, mm. uh, and it, it, it's a testament to the uh, the Bible that, that, that we still have these these figures here. That are that are quite inspiring, actually, not just to to women but to men as well. You know, to see that strong female element. So I I applaud that. And one of the one of the ones that keeps coming up, and even though it's she's a mysterious figure and it's sort of uh, shunted to the margins, right, in the in the Gospels, is is Mary Magdalene, and um, she is a powerful force. I think you know, there's more going on than meets the eye there, and you. You you mentioned that possibly she was uh, in relationship with Jesus, right? Well, you don't get any of that from uh, the New Testament. I mean, she's hardly specifically named there. I mean, she crops right. she crops up doing amazing things. Although even the amazing things have been downplayed the way they're described. Um, I mean, Mary, for example, is the person who Christens Jesus. You know. Uh, Christ means the anointed one. And where's the anointing in the New Testament? There's only one event that can be an anointing. And that's the woman with the the the, the, uh, the perfumed oil, uh, the, the, the balm, who basically performs a ritual with Jesus that the, the male disciples have no idea what it is. But Jesus acknowledges that this is a ritual and that she's marked him out for the bury, his burying. In other words, for his fate. She has christened him, you know, and it's a, it's an amazing, it's the anointing and it's performed by a woman and putting it in absolute context, the woman is Mary Magdalene. Um, so she, she's acting like a priestess. She's an amazing woman, but you really do have to work at it to sift through all the available bits and pieces of evidence to work out that this is her. Um, and, but if you look at the, the, the gospels actually have been left out of, of the New Testament, the so-called Gnostic Gospels, such as the Gospel of Philip or the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Mary, as uh, you know, she, apart from Jesus, she is the star of those. And it tells you an awful lot about their relationship and what she was about, what he was about, and everything falls into place. Right. I, I don't want to uh, contradict what you're saying, but some people would say that the, you know, the anointing was or well, the, the baptism by John the Baptist was the, the first anointing there, you know, where the dove came down and, and uh, God speaks. And, and so, the, you know, there's that, there's that as well. Um, well. But there can be both, right? I mean, it can be a, a male and a female here. It, it could, but it's, um, um, I, th I think the idea of the baptism being the anointing, because obviously like lots of people were baptized, it, it didn't, mark it out particularly it's really a matter of um trying to find you know jesus must have been anointed at some point who did it um well it it must have been you know they completely ignore the fact it could have been done by a woman you know, traditionally is the way that people thinking it must have been done by a man oh there's only one thing that seems to be it that's john the baptist um but in terms of a a, a real ritual anointing that is specific to Jesus, not given to a whole load of people. Um, yeah, I think the, the, the best candidate by far is the one that's the, the anointing by a woman, by mm. Mary, who yeah. is very clearly yeah. uh, Mary Magdalene. Uh, and of course, that's not denying that John the Baptist had a huge um, mm. yeah. uh, impact on Jesus' mm. career as well. Mm. But um, let's say it, it could be both. 
I think you know the anointing yeah. rather than an anointing. Yeah. I think really has to go down to to, to Mary. But, yeah. You know, right. But you still see her, you know, in in the the, the non uh, canonical texts, see yeah. her power and authority in those. Yeah, she's amazingly powerful, and and her personality comes through in the non canonical text, which is something I personally really warm to, because actually one of the things, uh, Paul, that really gets me is, you know, um, now that people have turned to Mary Magdalene in, in 20th century and 21st century and, and, you know, see her in a new and important light, they tend to to put her on a pedestal and you, you can't you can't criticise her. And, you know, she, she's treated as if she's a divinity. Well, you know, if she really existed and we believe she very much did. Then she was, a, you know, a, a human person with flaws like anybody else. And I find her quite amusing, actually, you know, in, in these the non-canonical books, because she really is a very feisty woman. And she does put people's backs up, rather. And she does rather manipulate them. But, you know, maybe that's all, you know, all the power that she had, you know, good for her. But, um, but she's a very, I mean, I really would um, suggest that people read the likes of the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Mary or the Gospel of Philip, because... It sheds a whole new light on Mary Magdalene, on Jesus, who seemed to be a feminist. It's not just Mary Magdalene who he, he encourages to stand up and, and, and say her piece. It's people like Martha and Salome and, and you know, other women. Um, he, he's very happy with this. But the, the men, the famous 12, the, the famous male disciples, on the whole, are not happy with this. They don't understand it, especially Peter who hates Mary Magdalene. So this is a whole new scenario that you're getting when you read these other books. Absolutely. And, you know, and the fact that, uh, for instance, you know, Jesus's brother James, you know, was hugely influential, right? He was the bishop yeah. in, in Jerusalem, but he, yeah. he fell out of favor and, and there's hardly any mention of him in the, mm. in the Gospels mm. or the Acts. You know, he, he appears, but not in his true power. And that's because... Mm. You know, the, the Peter and Paul became the, the the founders of this religion, you know, that's not really the religion of Jesus. It's the religion about Jesus. And um, yeah. there's a difference, right? And uh, yeah, so really in the same way that he was sort of marginalized, I think the, mm. the, the, the female presences, mm. because, you know, you can't help but read, if you read, uh, especially Luke, um, mm -hmm. And you see all the women that are involved in, in Luke, you know, the, yeah. and, and the fact that the, the women are sometimes Samaritans, you know, in John, for instance, mm -hmm. the, the woman at the well, you know, right, is a Samaritan woman and, yeah. and the, 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 the good Samaritan. Jesus mm -hmm. is, um, you know, iconoclastic in that, isn't he? He, he goes mm -hmm. outside of the norms here. Yeah. He embraces yeah. the rejected. And yeah. that's another thing I wanted to mention about Mary Magdalene. Uh, and also the, the the cult prostitutes, so-called in the in the Old Testament, you know, which mm -hmm. may or may not be prostitutes, but they they were sacred. The sacred feminine, um, uh, maybe they had sacred sex, you know, like tantric sex or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But but they were often rejected, um, just as they say Jesus was rejected. Right? There's an element of uh, you know, there's demons in in Mary Magdalene, right? That um, that it left her, etc. It's this, and it's if you go to India, you see the same idea. There's an image of the female called Chamundi that, that is means the emaciated one, the one that takes on all the sins and the diseases 
uh, of the world, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and in order to be um, fully present and compassionate for us. And I love that idea, right? It's the despised ones, mm -hmm. the, the rejected ones that are sometimes the most powerful because of that. They're not part of the power, power structure. They're outside of it, but they're more immediately present to us because of that. Yes, that's very true. But you, you, you know, you mentioned the, the the cult prostitutes there. I mean, it's one thing that working on the book really brought home. It's the way that language and, and terms are uh, uh, manipulated, in, particularly when they're translated. So that you know, if you read, um, I think any English translation of the Bible, you do find in the Old Testament books these references to cult prostitutes. When you actually look at the the Hebrew. The word that is translated as that is Kadesha. What that actually means is holy woman, the literal meaning. Right. Uh, and it's only because there was this repeated um, association in those books um, where they connect, um, you know, use these kind of negative sexual metaphors for um, not worshipping Yahweh alone so they you know things like adultery things like uh, visiting a prostitute because they keep using this imagery English translators now look at this word that literally means holy woman and nothing else but because of the association they, they translate that as called prostitute mm. um, and there are several examples of that that when you actually look at the literal meaning you know how it would have been read by um, you know a Hebrew reading it in the language at the time. There was nothing about, nothing to suggest cult prostitution um, or any form of prostitution. Mm. It just says holy women. Having said that, there probably was a tradition of mm. the sacred sex because yeah. there was in all religions of those. Yeah, times. I mean, these women were essentially priestesses. And mm -hmm. in, in any context, for much of, much of history, let's be honest, you know, men have thought that women with any kind of power, priestesses or, or any other kind of power, are actually abnormal. There's something not right about them. There's something that, you know, has to be put down. As you say, uppity women, you know, has to be put down. You know, um, so so basically priestesses, um, you know, retrospectively at the time, perhaps but also retrospectively, you know, have to be shown in a bad light, you know, in order to make the men feel better about themselves and, and and rewrite history so that, you know, the, the women were always bad news. Right. Yeah. Unfortunately. But, yeah. you know, like we said, there's a silver lining in that, you know, the, the one, the, the, the stone that the builders rejected, right. To use yeah. uh, a phrase about Jesus yes. becomes the cornerstone of the temple. So, um, yeah. you know, that, that's the good news. And mm -hmm. um, you can, and we know this from, uh, for instance, you know, the, the, the attempts by the the Soviets, you know, to eradicate uh, Christianity, right? It didn't, they sent it underground, but it didn't, it didn't work. It's still there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. You, you can't, you can't get rid of an, uh, a deep abiding connection that people have to the sacred. And I think this yeah. is the same with the deep abiding connection to, to the feminine as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I often think of Jesus as a female. Is that okay? I mean, because, you know, if, if you look at the Holy Trinity, um, you know, the, the, the Father is the male, the, Jesus is the female, and then and then you've got the Holy Spirit, which is the two in action in the world. Um, that's, that's not to feminize Jesus so, as much as to see there's the, the elements of love and compassion that are the core of who he is. 
you know, other other female elements there. So, um, you well, know, I mean, in, in the originally, you know, the um, the ancient Egyptian trinity was father, mother, and child. Right. So, you know, that that's quite a healthy balance, really. Yeah. And, and you know, you see that Jesus is a, as a mother again. You know, caring. Mm. Mm. for people uh, and a mother that you know is not just a a soft uh easy going person but can be violent at times right when it's necessary yeah. you know could be harsh um and protective and and you see that in jesus as well yeah yeah but and another thing i mean come on a bit you know, jesus is as feminine and another thing that although we've been researching this for a long time sort of 30 years on and off you know um, but actually settling down to, to, to do the book and, and digging into some other kind of scholarship, I just realised how accepted it is, certainly by a, a, a stream within New Testament scholarship, um, of how important the feminine was in Jesus's life and teaching, um, to the point that some biblical scholars, you know, academics, um, actually call Jesus, Jesus Sophia. Because of the way the, the wisdom, the the, the, right, right. the wisdom of God, absolutely. And again, it's one of those things that it gets lost in translation in a couple of ways. Just in a very simple way, that when God, so when Jesus talks about the wisdom of God doing something, you know, wisdom being a separate creative feminine force. So He will say, "The wisdom of God did such and such." This gets translated into, for example, the King James Bible as being God in his wisdom decided to do this, which mm -hmm. changes the meaning. Mm. Um, um, and the other thing that happened in, in some of the Gospels is that when Jesus would deliver a message and say, um, you, the wisdom of God uh, says such and such, so he's, he's delivering a message on behalf of Sophia, um, in some in, in some gospels, they change it. Instead of saying um, the the wisdom of God, Sophia mm. says this, they change it to I say this. Mm. So mm. it's it's yeah. almost um, part of the process of turning Jesus mm. into um, you know, the Son of God or or a manifestation of God is actually through his teaching about Sophia. You know. And you, you know, you link in the book to the idea of Sophia and the logos, right? With and and um, and that's interesting too, because right there at the beginning of John, you know, we have in the beginning was the word, the logos, and and so there's that feminine energy again, you know, the um, and it's it's part of the executive power of God, it seems to me, you know, that in, again in Hinduism, Shiva, for instance, doesn't have to do anything; it's just potential. It's the Shakti of Shiva, the female aspect that does the work, you know, mm. that there's the energy put, moving in and through everything. And it's the same idea, you know, the Sophia power, the wisdom is, is what informs things, in, enlivens things, um, mm. gives meaning to things, right? And so, you know, that, that is a, a very um, visceral and um, effective part of, uh, of our connection to the, the whole of the divine. So, to me, very fascinating stuff. Yeah, well, it, yeah, it is. I mean, you know, we believe that the evidence is that basically Jesus was trying to return, uh, you know, the, the Jewish religion to its to its goddess worshipping origins, you know, um, and and so obviously the the sacred feminine was uppermost in that in that. Right. Time. 
I, I don't know if you're familiar with a, an, an artist named Robert Lentz. He's a Franciscan, um, but he makes icons, mo- kind of modern day icons. And one of them is of Mary Magdalene. And, mm. and uh, it's a very powerful image of Mary Magdalene. Most of his images are sort of swarthy skinned people. They're not your, mm. your little mm. Western figurine yeah. figures, you know. Um, mm. But she's very brown skinned, looks mm. peasant like. Mm. Um, typical Middle Eastern woman, but mm. she's, uh, w- with one hand, she's pointing to an egg that she's holding in the other hand, and uh, mm. the egg mm. re- representing, again, you know, fruitfulness, the, the wholeness mm. of life, um, yeah. the provision, whatever. Mm. Powerful mm. image, because I, I love that, you know, there's there's the Magdalene, there's the yeah. uh, the female energy pointing mm. to the fact that she holds the, the key mm. to, to all kinds of fruitfulness in all aspects of our of our lives, and I like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, I mean, you know, I, and also, you know, I like to think that when Jesus is is giving his the Sermon on the Mount or whatever, she's there, you know, she's standing by his side. So if he wants to, you know, if he wants to uh, emphasize uh, the the sacred feminine, he really just has to point to her. Right, right. exactly. Yeah, very good. We've got a few minutes left. What I'm going to do is tell people about next week's show, and then I'm going to hand it over to you two guys to give us your considered thoughts to take with us into the week. OK, just something we can learn from your book uh, and put into practice. So um, think about that for just a second while I while I tell them about tell everybody about next week's show. And then, and then we'll in the last few minutes, we'll we'll do that. Um, so next week, this is part two in the series, um, which I'm really looking forward to now after this fascinating show. Um, I welcome a mystical physician, uh, Christina Page, uh, MD, and she's going to talk about her book. It's called The Heart of the Great Mother, uh, Spiritual Initiation, Creativity and Rebirth, The Heart of the Great Mother. So a lovely uh, connecting in with, with what we discussed uh, today. So let's let's come back to, to Clive and to, to Lynn. Um, Words of wisdom drawn from the book, perhaps, or from your collective uh, uh, knowledge that can help us as we go forward this week. Well, if we're going to fix the great loss over the centuries of the great mother, obviously we have to welcome her back. That's the first step. But also bear in mind that the great mother was a half, a half of a team, a half. She was she had a consort. She had a male other half. And basically, it's about balance. It's about keeping the balance between the male and female energies. Yes, I, I was like to, um, well, because obviously we, our book is about the loss of the sacred feminine. Well, we, we call the, the, the subtitle of the book is the fall and rise of how you know she is coming back in, in, in many ways. Um, but I always like to put in the, the point that when the sacred feminine is um, marginalized, erased, yes, it does great damage mostly to women because they are robbed of a place in um, not just in a religion, but obviously in, in, in society in general. Um, but m- uh, men suffer as well. I won't say as much because when you get into that um, uh the, the kind of world and mindset that that creates, this very male mindset, it also forces men into um, 
only being able to express certain sides of themselves. You know, they have to become very macho, very aggressive, very warlike. So the sacred feminine isn't just about restoring the feminine and doing justice to women. It's also bringing something back to men because men lose out too. Yeah, I think that's an ex excellent point, Clive, because I think there is that imbalance. And a lot, a lot of the time we focus on the, you know, how to heal the feminine side of things and, and, and books are often produced for for women, like my the book I did last week, you know, was it was focused for women. But again, I found the book, you know, very fascinating for me, too. And then there's there's work to be done there for the for the male in our society as well, right? We're not we, just because we have the quote the power supposedly doesn't mean we always like to have that, you know. And it's it's power at a cost too, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, Lynn said it's balance. That's that's what we're really looking for. You know? Right. So that that's our uh, that's our hope for everybody this week. Then that uh, continue to find balance. I think. Uh, it's true in the COVID-19 uh, situation, too, that there's some things we might say are not so good, but there's also blessings. So there's a balance there. And we need to look for uh, the, the, the shining things in the midst of the dark, right? Um, because they're always available. Um, so, so that's important. If people want to get hold of you, what's the best way? Yes, well, it's our website, which is www.picnetprints.com. Um, and they're, you know, from there you can find out what they need to know. They can buy our books. Yes. Um, yes. And um, so, yes, and they can you know, find out all other kind of things that we're up to at the moment. And if you want the inside scoop on how the Da Vinci Code came to be, now you know where to go, right? They, this is the, these are the people. And I think you even had a cameo uh, moment yeah. in, in yeah. the movie itself. So there you go. You can look out for, for Lynn and, and Clive in the movie itself so uh, it's been a wonderful show thank you so much for being with us today well, thank, no, you, thank you thank you and thanks for listening folks take care now bye-bye thank you for listening this is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash IMDivine2022. 